Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Starting Small Music Podcast. I'm your host, Justin McCormick, and today we have a very special guest with us. We have artist and songwriter James McNair. You're going to hear James' story of growing up in South Carolina and what first got him into music. You'll also hear about his time at the University of Alabama, the story behind the writing of Luke Combs' number one hit, Loving on You, and what fans can expect this year as he goes on the road to open for Luke Combs. I had a great time talking to James. I hope you guys enjoy, and we'll see you at the end. Just keep a smile on your face and it'll be okay. Try not to be bitter. You gotta do it either way. Keep a smile on your face and it'll be okay. So when life throws a jab, you gotta duck out of the way. How you doing today, James? I'm good, Justin. How are you, bud? I'm doing good. So getting right into your story, you grew up in South Carolina. What was your childhood like? So I grew up in a small town uh, called Aiken, South Carolina, and it was super tight-knit community. Everybody knows everybody, you know, the same cliche, small town-esque, you would say. But it's a, it's a town that's about 20 minutes from Augusta, Georgia. So uh, we've a lot of golf, a lot of horses, um, a lot of retired folks come down, but my dad's been, um, in the golf business, um, for shoot, probably, I guess now it's, uh, almost 40 years and my grandfather did the same thing. So, uh, he runs a golf course in my hometown. So I, I grew up, uh, working for him and going to a small school when I grew up and then, uh, played golf and, Got into music uh, at about seven years old, um, found this old guitar in my grandma's attic that was just just an old uh, Sears, believe it or not, it was a Sears uh, Roebuck catalog guitar. So back in the day, you know, uh, they would send these big catalogs out and you could go through and find what you wanted for Christmas or whatever and order it. And it was uh, basically like a piece of plywood, basically, that was painted red and had these like these pickups that were probably not any better than like a bad microphone kind of pickups. And so I found this guitar and I guess it was my uncle's and it was from the seventies. And I, uh, I begged my grandma. I was like, I, I can't use this without an amp. It was an electric, you know? And, and she was like, okay, we'll go, you know, I'll take you. And I, you know, seven years old. And she, she takes me out of the music store and we got this uh, little Ibanez amp. And then I just started making a bunch of racket, but um, you know, I'm a little bit older, so I'm, I'm 34. Mm-hmm. So in those days it was like, we were in the heat of uh, alternative rock and, and rock. And I was super into classic rock and all that stuff. So the, the good part about that is bands like Bush and Nirvana, a lot of the songs were easy to learn how to play with power chords. It was only two fingers, you know, instead of learning the, you know, three fingers uh, C and G, like the open chords that we use a lot in country. I was just doing power chords and Lenny Kravitz, like I think was probably one of the first songs I learned how to play um, fly away. I think it was, but um that's kind of the the gist, man. Yeah, I uh, I, I grew up in in Aiken and uh, played golf um, on the golf team and uh, tried to stay out of trouble. I wasn't the best kid, you know. We got bored a lot in my hometown, and there was a lot of um, early beer drinking going on. You know, sorry, mom, I'm sure she'll she'll hear this, but uh, we had a good time, man. And uh, to be honest, I didn't really get serious um, with music until. 
I was in high school and it wasn't as, as serious in a songwriting aspect. It was more so, hey, I want to learn this song and learn how to sing it and be able to get from front to back without messing up. And then sure. I would start jamming with guys and um, we would start these little garage bands and be way too loud. But I think at one point we had a band that we could get through like four or five songs. So we, my dad would let us, um, they would have these like 4th of July things at the course that he runs in my hometown and he would let us come play and we would just arrange the set like we'd have those five songs and then the rest were jams, you know, everybody just be jams. So each song was like a 20 minute version, but people loved it and people embraced it, you know, um, I think, you know, it, it's kind of cool to see uh, a lot of kids now instead of being on iPads or whatever else they're on that. But I feel like music and they, I, I've been seeing, I don't know if you have too, but there's a lot of music schools out called like school. I don't know if it's called school of rock or it's kind of based around that movie, but they yeah. enroll their kids there and then they, you know, learn how to play music and, and uh, learn the song. And I thought that was so cool, man, that uh, there's actually people out there that, that actually want to learn how to, play an instrument and sing, but also be able to play in a band. And so um, that's kind of just my story in a really, you know, small nutshell there, but. For sure. Now, before you even find the guitar, uh, is there any like albums or artists that stick out that you remember resonating with the kid as a kid that kind of drew you to music? You feel like. Absolutely. Yeah. My dad, um, he's, he's not musically talented at all, but he has a really good ear and he's kind of a music snob. And so in college, he used to collect, um, he collects all sorts of stuff, but he loved collected, collecting vinyls. So I was really, really lucky as a kid that we had this, um, this record player and he taught me how to use it very early on and Hey, don't mess up the needle. And Hey, this is how this works. And you press power here for the receiver and all that. But boxes and boxes, man, are just unbelievable records. Um, I mean, I loved all the Leonard Skinner stuff, but he was a huge Bruce Springsteen fan, so I'd wear out those records. Uh, Zeppelin one, like all of the uh, just the heavy hitting kind of classic rock singer songwriter albums too. Um, like shoot, Jim Croce would be one that we had his stuff. James Taylor. Um, Van Morrison. I mean, all these just very, very amazing songwriters and bands. And so I would, I remember five, six, seven years old, not only playing his records, but also going to um, like back in those days, it was, I guess it might've been Sam Goody, but one of those kind of stores in the mall and I'd save my grass mowing money and I'd find this album, like a Pearl Jam that's coming out or, or, you know, whatever it may be. And I would go and I'd save my money for like a month and go and buy that album. And um, it, they were all on cassettes then, you know. And mm -hmm. so I we had a cassette player and I would just sit in front of uh, those two Yamaha speakers, man, and just drive my mom nuts. But uh, yeah, I'd, early on, I would say it was a lot of that classic rock stuff and Bruce Springsteen, but also very heavily influenced in the alternative rock and rock side like uh oasis alice in chains nirvana green day like all the kind of stuff that was you know in the heat of the mid 90s i was super sure. into yeah. it's cool you talk about a lot of that older like, kind of rock stuff and also singer songwriter stuff because i feel like a lot of that stuff could have gotten pushed to country radio today if it was released 
Oh, a hundred percent, man. You're dead. You know, I laugh all the time. Um, I see, you know, I was just out with Hardy this weekend and um, just with his, his project and his artistry and watching the crowds react. Uh, I was joking with him and I think it's very true that a lot of his rock stuff is based around early two thousands, like even late nineties riffs, but the kids that are following country and following him as an artist are too young to remember that music, you know, rock radio is dead. So, you know, being 34, I would flip on a rock radio station in 96, 97, 98. And like, we were just, you know, force fed, honestly, all this great rock music, but now it's gone. So when, when these kids in high school or early college age kids hear someone like a Hardy, they probably, if their dad said, well, this sounds kind of like Allison Chains or Stone Temple Pilots are like, who, you know? So I feel like that's kind of rejuvenating um, the rock side, which I love because I love that music. And I think it's really cool that it's coming back. Like I've been listening to Austin Snell some and, and his stuff is like that. Um, I, I think there is, uh, I mean, Nate Smith, who I work with some and, and Bailey, they all have that. Um, I, I would say just, just a hinting to, it's not as hard. Some of their stuff is more, it, it is the rock, but it's not as hard as like an Allison Chains or a Metallica or something. Um, Hardy, some of his stuff can be, but, uh, no, it's, it's amazing. And I think that's why I love country music so much, um, that, we're able to, to do that, you know, for sure. Now coming out of high school, you decided to go to the university of Alabama. What was that decision? Like, uh, were you considering at one point just going and doing music right out of high school? Were you going to college for your parents? What was that decision like? Yeah, that's funny. But yeah, I was actually going to college for my parents to be mm-hmm. honest. And that, and you know, that's nail on the head, but I was also going to college for me, man. I think I wanted to get the heck out of my my hometown. And so my aunt at the time, um, she had gone to Alabama. And ever since I was, you know, super young, she would be like, you need to be, you need to go to Alabama, you know, roll tide. And I always used to laugh it off because both my parents went to Clemson University and played sports there. My dad played golf and my mom played tennis. So for me, college was always the goal, you know, you go in and it's their generation, man. It's like you go in, you make good grades and, and you have, you have a sport and whether the sport takes you there or not, you make good grades and you go to college and you get a job. Like that was the structure. And I think it was, it wasn't a question whether I was going to go to college. It was just where, you know, so um, I didn't make the best grades in high school. I, like I said, I, I was kind of a wild man. I was, I was class clown of, of a class, a graduating class of about 500 people. So I wear that badge with honor. A lot of, of a lot of stuff, you know, that went on, but that, uh, the funny thing is I was playing a lot of golf in high school and we were partying a lot. So it was, it was one of those things that my GPA was just all over the place. And so, Going into my senior year, my GPA was so bad that I basically had to like pull a three eight or a three nine to even get my GPA up to like pass a three point oh. And my <laughs> parents were so mad because it wasn't for lack of it's not like I'm not intelligent. And it was just I didn't like the babysitting aspect of high school. I felt like a lot of the information I never would need. And it was, and we don't have to get into that, but um I I ended up actually applying myself because it scared me that, oh my gosh, if I don't make these grades, I'm not going to get out of my hometown. So I ended up making, um, I think a three, nine, uh, my, my senior year, um, to raise my GPA. 
And my SAT wasn't that great or whatever, but the only big school I could get into at the time uh, was Alabama, believe it or not. Um, and that's where I wanted to go though. We visited and I was like, this is the perfect distance away. It's about five out, five and a half hours from my hometown. And I didn't really want to go to university of South Carolina at the time. I didn't want to, I couldn't get into Clemson. Um, and there were some other schools around, but I wanted to kind of distance myself and create a new life for myself outside of my hometown. And that was my decision to go to, to Alabama. For sure. Now, were you writing during uh, your time at Alabama? And do you think that uh, going to college actually gave you some a lot more material to write about during that time, too? Oh, 100 percent. Yeah. So I um, that was kind of the story when I really got serious about writing songs. I when I went to Alabama, I had a roommate that ended up um, I guess he joined a frat and then he wanted to room with someone else and they were going to like do a roommate switch. And I, I you know, I was like, dude, whatever. So they, he moved out, but they never put someone back in my dorm room. So at the time, I had met some buddies that had played guitar and stuff. So I put an amp in there and I had an electric and then I bought a drum set. and I learned how to play drums and we would literally just put like pillowcases on top of my drum kit. And I had brushes and we would just go in there and jam and no one cared, which is wild. Like obviously everyone in that dorm I was in, it was Patey Hall in Alabama. It was like the worst dorm on campus. So everyone was partying and rolling kegs up in there anyway. They're like, oh, we got a free band. Great. No one's trying to study in that dorm. So it worked out. So uh, when he moved out and so I, I didn't have any pressure of, oh, I need to be quiet. Like if the guitar was right there and something would come to my head, like a riff or something, I could pick it up and, you know, do what I wanted to do. So I, I ended up um, really reading about the structure of songs. I had written some songs in high school that were just bad, like had no structure, you know, like 30 second intros and that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. But when I was at Alabama, I really tried to focus on, okay, what makes this song great? And I wasn't like reading like how to write songs. I wasn't like going on Google and, hey, what's the structure? I was just listening to stuff I really liked. And I was like, how long did it take to get to the first verse? How long was the verse? What was the rhyme? Like, okay, so we rhyme this, this, and this. And then it was a pre-chorus. And then what do I like about this chorus? Is he jumping the octave or what is he, you know, he or she doing here that I'm loving? So I just kind of dove into that and started writing songs and getting serious about writing songs in my dorm room. And then by the time I left uh, Alabama, I had like two or three songs that I wrote by myself that looking back now, obviously, as a professional, I'm like, they weren't that great, but they were better than anything I'd ever done. And I remember going home and playing them, you know, for my parents and stuff and some friends. And they're like, dude, actually, this is pretty good. Like, there's some cool melodies here and the idea's not bad. Like, I think you might have something here with, you know, writing and singing your own songs. So that's kind of how that came about. So you end up moving to Nashville in 2013 and only two years into town, you signed with Tree Vibes Music. How does that uh, come about? Man, um, I, I would say, you know, looking at, looking at it now, I just uh, hit my 10-year mark last week. Um, I would say a lot of timing and good fortune, but I, I also really, really, really uh, got out there and 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 hit the hit the ground running. I didn't know anyone when I moved to Nashville. Uh, I I knew there was a girl that I dated in college, and she had a friend that would would come visit her in college, and I got to know him. He's a great guy, and I found him um, on Facebook, and he did he lived in Nashville at the time. 
And like I said, I hadn't talked to him because that so much time had passed by the time I was in Alabama to the time that I had moved to Nashville. So when I said, like, I hadn't talked to him, man, I would say in six or seven years. So it was kind of out, out on a limb, you know? And so I went through my Facebook at the time it would let you like on a directory, like, who do you know that lives in Nashville? Like you put the location of the city and it would show your friends. Yeah. And like, he was like one of them um, on, on Facebook. And so I just like messaged him when DMs weren't that popular that if you're getting a DM back at those days, they were like, Oh God, what's going on? You know, how's grandma doing or, you know what I'm saying? Like it's, yeah. it's not one of those it, uh, kind of networking things as it is now. And I was like, Hey man, I see that you live in Nashville. I, I really am thinking about just coming and visiting. I know it's the music capital of the world and and I have a band and back home and I just really think I need to come visit. He's like, well, man, I don't really have the, the best spot to, you know, I don't have a guest room or anything. I'm renting this house over uh, in Edge Hill or wherever it was. And he's like, I've got a couch, though. I was like, dude, couch is fine. You know, uh, I was like, I know this is crazy. I haven't seen you in a while. But man, last time we hung out, we had a good time. Let's let's go and drink some beers and, and do it. And uh, so he he was like, come on up. And so the next like couple of weeks, I, I, uh, I went up there and I stayed for like two or three days on a weekend. And, uh, man, it was 2012 at the time, um, in the fall and just the city was just electric, man. There was just a feeling about it, just the creativity. And, and I went out and I went to a couple, uh, writers rounds and I went and saw some shows and, uh, I just felt, I, I don't know how to explain it. I'm a big, um, you know, universe and feelings guy and the energy guy, right? Like I, you know, I feed off of that and I just felt something that was just pulling me like I, where I needed to be was here. And yeah. so um, I ended up, you know, hanging out that weekend and he introduced me to some folks. He, he works for uh, Taylor Swift. He was in her, which is crazy because he's rocking and rolling too he's um he was working in her mailroom like fulfilling christmas orders for taylor you know and now he's like part of her like management team like he's he's in it so it's just it's wild to see where people go so i i came back home and i told my parents i was like hey i need to get to nashville asap like i and at the time i think i was having a quarter life crisis because my dad was trying to put me on salary to work as an assistant superintendent for his golf course. And that word salary kind of felt very confining, you know, and, and I felt like, Oh man, that's a big word. Like salary. That's uh, that's going to keep me here. Like this is going to be my job. And so I kind of got cold feet with that. And, and after I visited Nashville, I was like, you know what, I'm going to try this. Like I'm going to go up there, you know? So I basically sold pretty much everything I could sell. I had a boat that I had bought with some graduation money um, in high school and some other odds and ends, and then got on Craigslist and applied to some jobs and then uh, got into uh, the, I'm trying to think, uh, I got an email from, um, his name was BJ Parker at the time, the superintendent of uh, Brentwood Country Club. Mm-hmm. And he was like, man, your experience is more than, than anyone we've had, you know, because I'd worked for my dad for, you know, five, six years uh, in the golf business and I kind of or as a superintendent. And so he's like, listen, I can only offer you an entry level position like you're probably going to be annoyed at 
who you're going to have to work with, you know, but right. I can't just bump you right in. I have guys that have worked, you know, for me for five or six years that are already assistants and you're just going to have to work for them. I'm like, dude, I'll take anything. Whatever gets me up here where I can justify, hey, I have this certain amount of savings and I make, you know, 10, 15 an hour for you. I could somehow figure this out. And so I went and uh, moved up March 1st um, after, you know, selling everything, pulled a little U-Haul and I found this, uh, this house on Craigslist that, Ended up being just a dump, man. It was the whole story. Like we could never find. Um, I was paying the guy that uh, it was basically a sublease, um, and he was going to school at like Vanderbilt or something. I was paying him rent. And he said he was paying it, mm-hmm. but he wasn't paying it to anybody. Okay, he was just pocketing it because they hadn't talked to the owners of this. Ha- the owners of the house were like in Saudi Arabia or mm-hmm. something sketchy right like so he little did i know he moved and i couldn't get in touch so literally i paid him rent for like six months that he just pocketed and then we took over the house after he left and we're trying to track down the owner so we could pay rent Mm -hmm. couldn't track them down went to the management um house and there's nothing or the management company and it had gone bust there's papers all over the floor we're like are we living in like what is going on it was it was literally like a um freaking sci-fi movie man so uh anyway so that's how i got there and I, I lived in that place for a bit and then i found another house and i just hit the ground running man i played so many writers rounds everything i can get my hands on i was in i met a lot of people at the bar to be honest it went when um whiskey jam was like in its first or second year of going and it was kind of the hot spot that and tin roof and yeah. I was just, I was out and I was getting seen and I was playing a ton of writer's rounds and trying to write with anyone I could. And I just kind of networked and worked my way into eventually meeting people with publishing deals. And we were write some, some pretty good stuff. And then the publisher would say, well, who's this guy McNair on this song? And so I got to know um, some publishers in town and I can't skip this step, but BMI was really good to me when I first moved into town. I met um, Leslie Roberts and I met Bradley Collins when he was there. And I also met a guy um, that, that helped me help me out a good bit that was that used to be there. Um, and it's too early in the morning. I can't believe I'm going to forget his name. Mark Mason. Sorry. Uh, there And Mark was instrumental in getting me that first publishing deal. And I'll tell you this, and for everybody listening, he was extremely hard on me in the best of ways, though, man. So he would literally, um, he started meeting with me and he's like, play me some songs. And I would play him like five or six songs, you know, and a couple of them be demos somehow that I've found like, hey, I could pay a hundred bucks for this demo. And, And a lot of them were work tapes. And he would literally pluck, be like, this one's, I really act like this one. The rest, eh. And he would keep it and he would put it in a folder and he'd say, hey, three months from now, I want you to come play me five more songs. And so three months would go by and we'd schedule a meeting and I'd go in and we'd talk life and I'd play him five more songs and he would trash four of them and he'd pluck one and throw it in there. Mm-hmm. And so we did that for about a year and a half of three months stints. And near the end, I was like, I was kind of getting frustrated. I was like, man, I'm right with all these guys that have deals. This guy got a deal. It's like, you know, uh, what am I doing? He's like, dude, I promise you, I would rather have you be ready. And I'm not putting my name behind you unless you're ready for meetings. 
you know? And I was like, okay, man, I trust you, but like, I'm getting frustrated, you know? <laughs> but at the time you want it, it's the today we're in, man. It's instant gratification, you know? It's just the times that we live in, you know? Okay. So at the end of the day, um, I freaking, you know, I, I've just gotten my my headspace of just, you know, nose to the grindstone. This is how it's working. And then after the last time we met, he was like, dude, you're ready. And he had the folder and it was like five songs from the past almost two years that I that were his favorites. And so he started setting me up with um, with some meetings. And uh, one was one of my first ones was was, was with uh, Kelly King. That's um, that does Brothers Osborne and a few others. And she was amazing. And um, she loved the stuff. And she's like, I would love to sign you today. But right now, you know, we just don't have the resources. There are small companies like we, we've got too many writers right now, but I'm going to keep an eye on you. And I was like, OK, you know, at least that's honest. And I met with a few other people and um, I had a couple little people sniffing around offers, but they were horrible, dude. Like there was one that was like, all right, I'm going to give you $12,000, uh, you know, a year. And I want a hundred percent of your publishing and all this stuff. And, and at, the, at the time I was like, Oh, maybe this is my opportunity. But then I would take it, you know, um, around and they'd be like, dude, if you sign that, you're crazy. Just wait, like keep working, keep grinding. I'm like, all right. And so I got to know Tom Luteran at Sony ATV. Um, through I was writing with um, with Matt Chase, uh, Murphy Elmore, John Langston, like that whole crowd was signed over there at mm -hmm. the time. And we hit it off. And he told me around that time, because he, he had asked me, he's like, dude, what's the deal with your like, have you found a deal? Like, I was like, man, I'm taking meetings, but I haven't really had anything that's that's come across, you know, that I would want to take. And he's like, I'll tell you what, we're super busy right now. We have like 200 writers like it's just crazy but if you find a small company to team up i'll sign you tomorrow so then i'm like my mind's like all right here we go i got my homework you know let me go find a, a smaller company and it just the stars lined up man it's a timing thing mark literally emails me like a week after i had that conversation with tom luteran it was like hey man um brian kelly is starting this new publishing company with florida georgia line called tree vibes like are you cool if I give him your info? I said, oh, uh, yeah, you know, yeah, it's awesome. Cool. So he emailed me and it was like this crazy like email that came in as spam at first because it was like this like tree vibes without the E. So it just looked, you know, the computer must have not recognized it. And then I realized who it was. I was, oh, my gosh, this is Brian. OK, hey, can you send me some songs? So I'd send him three songs and he'd be like, dude, these are amazing. Send me three more. So I sent him like 12 songs. And mm -hmm. after like he kept telling me to send them, I'm like, in my head, I, I was with Combs actually one day. He's like, dude, you're getting trolled, man. Someone's like stealing your song. You know, they're messing with you. And I'm like, oh, no. But I said, I promise, dude, like Mark at BMI told me he was going to contact me. And, and Luke's like, I don't know, dude, this sounds catfishy to me, you know, because <laughs> he didn't have a deal either. So he was equally excited for me at the time. But it was BK. And it turned out to be him. And he had a guy named Dane Schmidt helping him at the time. It was George Schmidt's brother um, running and he was running the company. So I linked up Tom to Dane after I'd sent a ton of songs to Dane and wrote with Jordan some and they hit it off. And then, you know, long story short, that was in the summer. I was signed November 1st, 2015. So that's how it kind of all came about. That's awesome. And everything ended up working out. You had a major smash with Luke Holmes, one of your first hits, Loving on You. 
What do you remember about the day you wrote that one and what went into that song? Uh, so what I remember, uh, it was the first weekend that Luke had his own bus as just him as the artist. Like, uh, you know, he was out with all his band guys and we used to write out there. We'd send them out and be like, y'all go find something to do. We're writing. But he had his first for just for him bus and he was super in love with his wife, Nicole, you know, and they weren't married at the time. And um, he was like, man, isn't this awesome? Like we got a sold out show tonight. And I think it was in Kansas city. He was like sold out show tonight. I got my own bus. My buddies are out here. Like we were just in a really, really good mood. Right. And it was in the morning. And uh, I just, I remember one of us got on that groove and the song spilled out in like 45 minutes and it felt good. And we laid it down on the work tape and did, we didn't think a second about it dude we put our phones in our pockets and i think we might have like maybe gone and played golf at whatever we did that day when thomas was out something fun i'm sure didn't think a word didn't think a thing about it and then he went in and cut it you know after probably six months from that from that day and um i mean they cut the fire out of it and we still didn't know if it was going to be a single or anything. We just knew the cut. I mean, he absolutely d demolished it. And with the horns and stuff, we were like, this is like straight up honky tonk and just fun. And I was like, I, I love it. But then he started playing it live. And Justin, and that's, that's when it just like took a whole new life. Um, and so when he would see the crowd reaction to it, he's like, he would always say like, dude, this would be a great single just because of the crowd loves it. It's a singable chorus. So I remember I went on his bachelor party and uh, I was just like hanging, hanging out in um, his man cave. And I think we're shooting like some plastic basketball game or whatever. And he just nonchalant comes over and he's like, Hey man, loving on you is the next single and just goes up, shoots a shot, you know, and walks away. Like, and I'm like over here, like, Oh my God, my life's about to change. You know, like, and he just, just, that's who the guy is. He just nonchalant tells me walks away. And I'm like sitting there in shock. Um, <laughs> And then, like I said, it, it rips up the charts and hangs up there at number one for a while. And it was great timing in my life because it was during the pandemic and none of us knew what was going on. And honestly, I was super burnt out at the time, man. I'd been out with, with Floor Georgia Line for two years, every single weekend writing songs. Never got a, I had a couple singles, but they fizzled out. Like I was at the point where I was like, man, is you know, am I ever going to get something on the radio that works? And so it was a perfect timing for my life. And I'm so blessed. Um, I definitely think it's a God thing. And I'm also blessed that, that Luke chose it as a single. Cause I mean, you know how his albums are, he could literally go like this and throw a dart and, you know, and they could, it could, there'll be a hit, you know, he's, uh, he cuts great songs. So yeah, that was a blessing, man, for sure. No doubt. Now you're coming off. You just released uh, a new single, "Fly on the Wall," and now you're going out on tour with Luke Combs. He's doing a really cool thing, having a writers' round open the show. Uh, are you excited to go out there, not only to promote the new single, but uh, also play some of your hits in front of huge crowds? Absolutely. So that was another one of those nonchalant Luke things. I'm down at the beach with him, and we're writing, and we're just eating breakfast or something. And he and he doesn't ask. He he's like, "Hey, man, so you're going to come out to Europe and?" Um, I think I'm going to have you, Ray, and Drew open the show. And I was like, for the tour? He was like, yeah, for the tour, you know? So uh, he he ended up doing that. And I was like, yeah, of course I'll do it. And I was, I've been pumped ever since. And it's a full circle thing, right? I mean, we were all playing writer's rounds and playing, like, we were playing Bellcourt Taps, like, way back in the day, Luke and I to nobody. 
Yeah. So for him to ask me, I'm super, super thankful. And we're just going to have fun. I've never been overseas. So that's part of the luster of it is we're going to go over and like actually see some historic places and play some golf and probably write some with that crew. I'd imagine I I, I would think that he would, he would want to write. And so it's just going to be a month of a month of craziness, man, to be honest. And I think what we're all going to do is play our own artist stuff because a lot of our hits are with him. So we can't go up there. I can't go up there, play love it on you. And then he has to get up, play it again. So it's probably going to be a lot of our own stuff. And so I'm super, uh, super grateful and, and, very, very appreciative for him to give us this opportunity because it is big. It's probably the biggest thing, you know, artist wise that I've had as far as getting my music out there. So for sure. Now, I like to close my interviews by asking, what's a piece of advice you've learned along your journey that you'd give to the younger songwriters and artists out there? So I like to change my answer on this one a lot because they're all, you know, I, I don't like to give the stock answer. So let me see what I'm feeling this morning. Cause there's so many ones that I've heard, you know, that I, that I like to repeat. And I always still take with me, but I would say I, I was talking with someone um, last night. I went to a birthday party and, and he comes up to me. He's like, man, you're doing so well. I was like, how are you doing? He's like, I'm doing great. And I was, we're just talking music stuff. And he's like, man, this town it's told me no more than my mom did when I was, you know, when I was wanting two desserts, you know, just kind of funny jokes about that. And I would say that anyone that's starting out and is especially in Nashville is you really just have to have an alligator thick skin, you know, people aren't going to, you know, people aren't going to like your music, but some people are. You know, and and that's the thing. You have to just take the nose and keep on going because when the yes does come, it'll be the right yes. And it yes, it's it's brutal. You're gonna hear no a lot, and you're gonna second guess yourself. But the longer that you you know stay down and keep your head down, and I'm in the same boat. You know, as far as I'll write a song that I feel like is a hit or a no brainer, and I won't hear anything. And it, it does, you go home and I'm like, am I losing? It's like some days I feel like I've never written a song in my life. And then some weeks I go and I feel like I'm in a rhythm and I'm rocking and rolling. But that's what I would say to uh, anyone coming into town is just work, work, work. You're going to hear no's, you're going to hear no's, but I promise the right yes will come along and it'll be a better deal than if you tried to force something or make something work. Let the universe work for you. Put good out and you'll get good back and just just work and keep your head down. Well, guys, there you have it. My conversation with James McNair. James, thank you again so much for coming on the show. I had a great time talking with you. Everyone go follow him on Instagram at James McNair Music. And make sure to come back next week to hear my conversation with hit songwriter Joey Hyde. Check out Starting Small Music on YouTube to see all the video content from our interviews. And also, follow Starting Small Music on Instagram at Starting Small Music and let us know who you'd like to hear on the podcast next. And remember, everyone starts small.